This episode of Outlines contains discussions on mental health and suicide that may be triggering for some people, so listener discretion is advised. I want to start today's episode by talking a little bit about my research method. Bear with me, I promise you that there is a reason why. When I start planning a series, my first port of call is always the internet. It's the easiest way to find cases and to quickly build an understanding of where I might need to begin to look. After I have an overview, I like to go deeper. This is the part where I spend time hunting through archives for either microfilm or digitised versions of newspapers and seeking out anything else that can help me to understand the time period or the area before I visit. When all this is finished, I identify anything that needs fleshing out, or just those parts that are of interest to me, and then I compile a document with everything typed up and accessible in one place. After that, I separate the research into colour-coded sections. Biographical information is yellow, the investigation is pink, the long-term impact on family and community is green, anything unusual is blue, and the timeline of the day that the incident happened is in orange. Usually, the orange section, the day of the incident, is pretty large, except that with this case, it's just three lines. They say, Yvette Watson, aged 17, went missing on the 30th of March 1979 from the David Rice Hospital in Helsden, where she had been staying voluntarily while receiving treatment for depression. She was five foot five or five foot six inches tall, with short brown hair and blue eyes. She was wearing a jacket, blue jeans or a brown cord skirt. In her possession was three pounds fifty. The final line says, apparently walked out of the hospital. That is all I can find. She apparently walked out of the hospital and as far as I can establish, there have been no confirmed sightings since then. As a matter of fact, in the days that followed her disappearance, there was no press coverage whatsoever. I actually couldn't find anything at all until an article from the Eastern Daily Press dated Friday the 11th of January 1980, which is almost ten full months after she vanished. On the 40th anniversary of her disappearance, in March 2019, Andy Guy, head of the Norfolk and Suffolk cold case team and a man whose name you'll be familiar with from many of my past episodes, spoke to the BBC. He told them, There have been a number of theories over the years concerning the circumstances of Yvette's disappearance. However, sadly, she has never been found. In the same article, her parents, Colin Watson, who was 84, and Enid, who was 79, said, We don't know what happened to her. The police went into it thoroughly. We would love to find out if she's still alive and what led up to her disappearance. Since that 2019 interview and subsequent appeal, I can find nothing more on her case. Indeed, as of now, two and a half years later, her profile on the Norfolk Police's Cold Case Missing Persons website has disappeared entirely, without a word as to why. I don't know if it's because Yvette finally came forward, or that they found definitive proof as to what happened to her, 
Or perhaps the family just felt like 40 years was long enough to wait for someone to come home. I tried to email the cold case team for clarity, but received no reply. And so I'd like to begin this episode with a quote from 1999, made by Detective Chief Inspector Tony Deacon, who at the time was the man leading the case review. He said, There have been no sightings, no bodies identified as Yvette's, and no word from her since 1979. We have an open mind. She may have died, she may have fallen ill and died in hospital under assumed name. She may have been abducted and murdered. She may have been taken by a religious cult. And there is, of course, the option that she has built a new life for herself and simply does not want to be found. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. Yvette Ann Watson was born on the 4th of August 1961 near Devon in Suffolk. She lived with her father Colin, who owned Watson's garage, and mother Enid, as well as her two younger sisters, Samantha and Candice. The family lived in the town of Albra on the Suffolk coast. Albra has a long association with the arts, having been home of composer Benjamin Britten, who lived there up until his death in 1976, and whose grave can be found at the parish church. It also plays host to a range of other cultural events, including an annual poetry festival, which showcases poets from all over the country. I visit Albra twice this autumn. The first time is for pleasure. We go one still warm day at the end of September, and while my partner and his kids play down near the water, I sit further back on the shingle and watch the gentle swell of the North Sea, thinking it's funny that what makes the area beautiful isn't the colours of the beached boats, their hulls rusted and paint flaked, nor is it the long expanse of stony coastline. But to me, it's the distant concrete bulk of Sizewell Nuclear Power Station, which perfectly undercuts the multitudes of blue striped t-shirts and real clotted cream ice cream. The second time I visit, it's as part of the location drive for a vet's case, and we've been on the road for about five hours. I don't want to give too much information, because I don't know if she still has family there. But we stop outside an unassuming row of houses and bungalows, and I find a vet's. If you saw a photograph, you could never guess that it's Albra. It could be any road in any town. As a child, She attended Albra Primary School, and later Layston Secondary. By the age of 13, Yvette had started to suffer with depression. Her mother said, At first we thought it was just teenage rebellion. One minute she'd be high and fine, and the next really down. You couldn't talk to her. 
By the time she was 14, in 1975, Yvette ran away from home for the first time. She hitched a lift to Ipswich, some 25 or so miles away from Albra, and when she returned, she'd cut her long brown hair short. That same year, she also disappeared 60 miles away to Chelmsford in Essex, where she took a room at the YMCA, giving the workers there a false name and address. In 1999, Enid Watson told the paper that she'd never tell us much about where she went or what she did. All we could do was wait by the phone and then go to pick her up. There seemed to be a seven-week cycle of her staying at home and then running away. But when she was at her lowest ebb, she always wanted to be at home. She didn't want to leave our side. After a year or so of this behaviour, social services offered Yvette a place at St Michael's in Ditchingham near Bungwe in Norfolk. St Michael's, which was situated within the grounds of All Hallows Convent, was a school and home which offered services to troubled teenage girls. The school, which up until the 1950s had been called House of Mercy, became a community home in 1965 and offered group therapy and family meetings as well as exploring self-knowledge and self-expression through art as a therapy. Yvette stayed at St Michael's for two years and while there she formed a close bond with the principal of the school, Bert Hurst, and with his wife Mary. Some of Yvette's diary entries from the immediate period after she left St Michael's were published in a special report run in the Eastern Daily Press in July of 1999. Her entry from Wednesday the 15th of March 1978 reads, I left St Michael's, this time for good. Anyway, now I'm going home and this time I'm going to try really hard to be happy there. I'm really glad that I went to St Michael's. Being there has helped me more than anything else in my life. It has been a place that I'll always remember with fond thoughts, and the people there I'll always love. I feel happy now, very happy, and this is how I am going to stay. The day after that entry, Yvette recorded that it was snowy out, and that she and her mum went together to Leyston Sports Centre. They played badminton and squash and used the multi-gym before heading to her grandma and granddad's. Later, she watched Top of the Pops for a while before her sister came in and demanded that the channel be switched. When she went to bed that evening, she wrote, It has been a very good day, and for a change, I'm very tired. What followed over the coming days were accounts of much the same type of activities, peppered with phrases which seemed to highlight that despite her efforts, she was still struggling with her mental health. The entry dated Friday, March the 17th, but actually written on the Saturday, says that she cooked spaghetti and read a book before falling asleep in an armchair while listening to Radio Orwell. In the evening, she went on her own to the cinema to see the deep. The entry ends with the lines, Anybody can read this, if it will help any way to help me get well. Please God, someone help me, someone please. God help me, for Christ's sakes. That weekend, she attended a disco at Leyston Sports Centre, and tells her diary of how she shared a kiss with a boy named Dave, who had a squeaky voice, glasses and a leather jacket. She listened to the Neil Diamond album, Love at the Greek, 
and was taken with a song called Beautiful Noise. That particular diary entry from Monday, March the 20th, 1978, almost a year before her disappearance, finished with the lines, Caroline phoned up tonight, going round to hers tomorrow. Mr Tobin phoned also. It is only with time that this line, Mr Tobin phoned also, has morphed in the minds of some to take on a sinister significance. Speaking in 1999, Colin Watson said, We were worried about Fred West. We can't help but think of Yvette when we see those things on the news. And so it is in the shadow of that thought that we need to look a little at Scottish serial killer and sex offender Peter Tobin. I want to preface all of this by saying that due to the diary entry Mr Tobin phoned also, a link between Yvette's disappearance and Peter Tobin has been thoroughly investigated and no concrete evidence has been found to link the two. I still think it's worth talking about him and this isn't the last episode in which his name will appear. In case you are unaware of Peter Tobin's history, he was born in Johnston in Scotland in 1946 and by 1970 was serving time for burglary and forgery in England. Between 1969 and 1990 he married three times and lived for most of this period in Brighton in Sussex. His wives all described him as being initially well-dressed and charming but when married he turned violent and sadistic, subjecting all of them to physical and mental abuse. Except for his burglary and forgery conviction, Tobin remained out of the prison system until May of 1994, when he was convicted for 14 years, of which he served a nine-year sentence, for attacking two 14-year-old girls in his flat in Havant in Hampshire. He held the two girls, who had been intending to call on one of his neighbours at knife point, and forced them to drink cider and vodka before stabbing one of them in front of his young son and turning on the gas taps. Despite this, thankfully both girls survived the attack. Following his release from prison, Tobin returned to Scotland where he lived under the name Pat McLaughlin. In the mid-2000s he found work as a church handyman and it was while he was employed at St Patrick's Church in Anderston, Glasgow, that on the 24th of September 2006, he raped and murdered 23-year-old Polish student Angelika Kluk, whom he attacked in a garage next to the presbytery where she was staying. He concealed her body in an underground chamber beneath the floor near the church confessional, and police established that she was most probably still alive when placed under the floorboards. In May 2007, Peter Tobin was found guilty of the murder of Angelica Kluke and sentenced to life in prison. The ferocity of the attack on Angelica was such that the case's lead detective David Swindle became convinced that this was not Tobin's first offence. He set up a nationwide police investigation with the moniker Operation Anagram. Operation Anagram looked into Tobin's background and asked the questions, did someone go missing in the areas where he lived? Was there an unsolved homicide? It was through this that a link was made to the disappearance of a 15-year-old girl called Vicky Hamilton in Bathgate in Scotland 
Vicky had gone missing in Bathgate on the 10th of February 1991 while waiting for a bus. Despite her disappearance sparking the largest search in Scottish history, no trace of her could be found, except for her purse, which was discovered in St Andrew's Square in Edinburgh, with nothing to point to how it got there. As Operation Anagram got to work, they realised that at the time of Vicky's disappearance, Tobin had been living in Robertson Avenue in Bathgate, not far from where Vicky vanished. The house in which he lived was searched, and in the attic, a knife was found. As well as this, police reanalyzed Vicky's purse and discovered a DNA profile. This profile was not a direct match to Tobin, but bore enough similarities that his immediate family were tested also. The answer came back. The DNA was a match for one of his sons, a son who was only three years old at the time Vicky went missing. When the knife was analysed, it was found to still have a piece of skin attached. This skin was a match for Vicky Hamilton. Tobin was interviewed and arrested for her abduction, but without a body, he could not be charged with murder. Tobin's old home in Bathgate was not the only place which would be searched. It had been established that he had travelled extensively through the UK. He sometimes worked as a second-hand car dealer and used a range of vehicles and aliases as he travelled. As the Operation Anagram team worked their way around the country questioning neighbours of Tobin's, one location in particular seemed to stand out. In 1991, the same year as Vicky Hamilton had disappeared in Bathgate, Tobin had moved to Margate on the south coast, 480 miles away, so that he could be closer to his young son. When police came around to Irvin Drive, where he'd once lived, an old neighbour of Tobin's told them that he had once seen him digging a sandpit in his back garden for his young son. The sandpit looked a bit deep to the neighbour, and a couple of days later it had been filled in again, reportedly because a social worker had said it was unsafe. As police began to dig in the garden at Irvine Drive, they had a feeling they knew who would be buried there. On the 5th of August 1991, 18-year-old sixth form student Dina McNichol from Tillingham in Essex had disappeared whilst hitchhiking home from a music festival in Hampshire. She had attended the festival with friends, but while there had met a man with whom she decided to spend an extra couple of days. On August the 5th, the two of them decided to hitchhike to their respective homes. Dina's friend was dropped at Junction 8 of the M25, and she and the driver with whom they'd accepted a lift went on alone. This was the last that anyone saw of her, except that her bank cards continued to be used around Hampshire and Sussex. When police revisited Dina's case in 2007, they were able to trace Tobin's movements to the same towns, and even pinpoint that he was there at the same time as Dina's cards were being used for the cash withdrawals. Police were pretty confident that her body would be recovered from the supposed sandpit at the house in Margate. On the 14th of November 2007, it was confirmed that a body had indeed been recovered from the garden. This was not, however, the body of Dina McNichol, but instead that of Vicky Hamilton. 
There could be no doubt. Her body had been dissected into two parts, with plastic bags tightly wrapped around them. These bags had created an airtight seal, which meant that her body was well-preserved and instantly recognisable. As surprised as the police were that this was not Dina's body, they had a feeling that Vicky would not be the only one of Tobin's victims buried in that garden. On the 16th of November 2007, a second body was found. This was indeed confirmed to be that of Dina McNichol. Tobin has since been sentenced for both of these murders and will see out the rest of his life in prison. But there are still question marks as to whether these women are the only ones he's killed. Detective David Swindle remains convinced that there are others. Jewellery with multiple unidentified DNA has been found in Tobin's previous houses, and these will remain on file until the owners can be identified. He was a man who seemed helpful and trustworthy and quick to make friends and had access to travel all around the UK, including, notably for this episode and the disappearance of Yvette Watson, a history of holidaying in Norfolk on the Broads. As part of Operation Anagram, all cases in Norfolk have been looked at and eliminated from the investigation, but still these stories persist, mostly because of that one line in Yvette's diary, Mr Tobin phoned also. Later, the Watson family were sure that they had no acquaintances called Mr Tobin, and nor they thought did Yvette. It has a feeling of credibility to it, doesn't it? The idea that Yvette could have somehow met Peter Tobin while at St Michael's, and that maybe she called on him after walking out of the David Rice Hospital. Remember that he seemed helpful and trustworthy, and he had no connection to her family, which would have made him the perfect person to call if she needed somewhere to stay. I can see why the theories persist. So let me give you a new one. It's based on exactly the same level of proof, which is to say that there is none at all, and is only to be taken as a demonstration that if you look hard enough, you can find many answers to the same mystery. It just depends what you want to believe. I looked up the name Tobin in the BT phone books on Ancestry.co.uk, concentrating on any in the east of England. In 1979, when Yvette disappeared, there are Tobins in Kings Lynn, Haverhill, Hartford, Caxton, Cambridge, Ely, Royston and Brook. When you start to look, you realise that it isn't such an uncommon name after all. I looked closely, just in case any were him, and one actually took my eye. Tobin, B.P., lived in Brook in Norfolk. Now, Peter Tobin's middle initial was B for Britain, but this B.P. Tobin had his initials the other way round. I checked, just in case, and of course it wasn't Peter Tobin, I can tell you that for certain. I did learn something, though. It turns out that Brook in Norfolk is just 6.6 .6 miles away from St Michael's, where Yvette spent two years. So it turns out that there was a man with the surname Tobin much closer to Yvette, and it's considerably more plausible that she and this B.P. Tobin could somehow have become acquainted, and that his surname is just an unfortunate coincidence. It all depends on what you want to believe. As March of 1978 drew to a close, 
Yvette's diaries started to show that her earlier optimism on leaving St Michael's had waned. On the 27th she wrote, I'm exhausted. I don't know where I was or what I had last night. I just remember these blokes. I phoned B, H and D but no one came for me until 5am. I've chucked my job, I've no boyfriend and haven't ever had since Jeff. I'm bloody well sick. I think I'm going up and down. I want to be loved by my dad but he hates me. I know something is very wrong as my writing is getting worse. Please, dear God, help me as no one else cares about me except my mum and Sam and Can. I love my dad more than anyone else in the world. I'd love to be as close to him as I was with Bert. This is Bert Hurst, the principal of St Michael's, who, as I stated earlier, Yvette had formed a close bond with over her time at the school. By the end of March 1978, she had reportedly checked into the David Rice Hospital in Helsden, on the outskirts of the city of Norwich. It was here that she spent her last known year. Enid Watson said of the David Rice Hospital, I think they just wanted to see if they could do something to calm her down at that time. We'd speak to her all the time on the telephone and tried to get up to see her every third day or so. Over her time there, Yvette responded well to treatment and medication helped with her mood changes, although her diary, of which this time period has not been released, reportedly still records her ongoing battles with depression. The David Rice Hospital has closed now, and all that remains are the fields on which it once stood. Despite this, I did manage to find out some information about the hospital from the time that Yvette stayed there. Psychiatrist Dr David Rice, after whom the hospital had been named, was reportedly one of the pioneers of the use of lithium therapy to treat mental illness. And while I couldn't find anything on the use of lithium at the hospital, I could find talk of their use of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. This practice involves a patient being sedated and a brief electrical current sent through their brain with the aim of reducing the clinical manifestations of some severe mental disorders. The Australian poet Francis Webb, who had been treated for schizophrenia at the hospital between 1956 and 1960, talks of his ECT experiences there in his poem October. I found an excerpt from one of the slightly less dense sections of prose in which he says, The committee room, two lolling candles for a mass, the pale green wall and fog, electrodes of voices jot wriggling channels of time and space to fall on jaded photographs dejected bundles begging peace from silver-grey mythos without scruple. I'll include the poem on Facebook if anyone is interested in reading the rest of it. In 1982, the Eastern Daily Press reported David Rice Hospital labelled as dismal, dirty and neglected after members of the Norwich Community Health Council visited. It says that they found there was poor decoration a dismal atmosphere. The ward curtains were in shreds. There had been too few baths and no treatment room. The walls and ceilings had reportedly only been cleaned as high as the domestic staff could reach from the floor, and everything above this was filthy. 
In the male section, there were 30 beds and only two baths. The female bathroom had a ceiling black and dripping with condensation, and the room was often too cold. As well as all of this, ECT therapy had to be carried out on a ward. In 1987, 75-year-old Annie Marsh was battered to death at the hospital, where she had been receiving treatment on the recommendation of her GP. She was discovered by a charge nurse lying on a toilet floor in a pool of her own blood. Her injuries were found to have been caused by someone repeatedly banging her head against the floor and walls of the toilet. Despite these things, there is nothing to suggest that Devet had struggled with the condition of the hospital. Indeed, by March of 1979, she seemed to have made good progress. She was due to return home around the beginning of April that year, and had made plans to attend Ipswich College, where she would train to be a nursery nurse. On March the 29th, the day before her disappearance, Yvette called her parents, and she asked her father, Are you coming to see me today, Dad? And later, Colin would say that these words would always haunt him, through what he called quiet moments and sleepless nights. I mentioned one of the diary entries, in which Yvette detailed her worries over her relationship with her father, and it's one of the saddest things about this case, because all over the reports into her disappearance you can hear how desperate her father is for her to come home. Speaking about their final phone conversation, Colin said, I told her I wouldn't go up and see her, because we'd be bringing her home in the next couple of days. But if there was one thing I could change, that would be it. If I could turn back the clock, I'd definitely go to see a vet that day. The next day, she apparently walked out of the hospital, never to be seen again. Despite the fact that there was very little press coverage at the time of Yvette's disappearance, police did mount an intensive 14-day inquiry. Over that period, they searched hospital grounds and nearby riverbanks, as well as checking with what the newspaper describes as Yvette's boyfriends and associates. Speaking about that time, Enid Watson said, She had always rung us before, so we waited for the call. We thought she might have gone away with a boyfriend. Then we thought she might have come under the influence of someone, probably a man, or even some kind of group like the Moonies. The Moonies, or Unification Church, is a group who in the 1970s had become a target of the anti-cult movement and were accused of having brainwashed their members. Enid went on to say, As time went on, we did start to think the worst. The only possible sighting of Yvette came on the 2nd of April 1979, when a former teacher thought that they saw her on Bullclose Road in Norwich, which led to her parents scouring the streets of the city. Other than that, though, there has been no trace of her. Enid Watson said, She had been quite ill, and I don't think she was quite thinking straight. She was very vulnerable. At Christmas, we thought we might get something through the post, but nothing came. She may have got in with some hippies, and is perhaps on drugs, and does not realise what is happening. In the 1999 Eastern Daily Press special, the paper tells their readers that since the reopening of Yvette's case, blood samples were taken from her parents in order to build up a DNA profile, 
and that they had plans to compare that profile to other unsolved cases around the country. They also reported that there had been a few more clues uncovered by the police, including the discovery of a dog-eared and yellowing letter, which may have been written to teachers and friends at St Michael's five days after she was reported missing. Although, unfortunately, there is no more information available about this. Detectives reportedly also discovered that on Wednesday the 9th of March 1983, 22-year-old Brian Allen, reportedly a boyfriend of Yvette's, threw himself from the top of a multi-storey car park in Norwich. I managed to track down a couple of articles which referenced Brian's death. According to the coroner, he was found to have taken his own life while the balance of his mind was disturbed. His psychiatrist at the clinic where Brian had been treated said, His death had come as a complete surprise. I suppose suddenly his mood wasn't so elated, and the despair must have come out. There's no mention that the death of Brian Allen is in any way related to Yvette's disappearance, but at the very least it serves as a warning to not assume that someone is okay, just because they appear to be so on the surface. Over the course of this episode, I've tried to include everything important that's contained within Yvette's diaries, but I haven't covered all of it. Not all the entries can be made sense of 100% without background context that I don't possess. Despite this, I want to leave you with the last half of an entry, her final published one. It has no date, saying only Wednesday or Thursday, and in it she says... Help will come either from God, Bert, or my own family. I live my life by three simple rules. Number one, before you speak, think carefully about what you are going to say and if it will hurt someone in any way, remain silent. Two, go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. Speak your truth without causing hurt to others. And three, strive to be happy amongst all the sham and drudgery and broken dreams. This is still a beautiful world. Be careful and strive to be happy. If you've enjoyed the episode and want to support the show, you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast or by clicking on the link in the description box below. Last month, the Patreon-exclusive episode was on the unsolved murder of artist Keith Church from Broxburn in Hertfordshire. This month will be the case of the headless woman discovered in Cockley Clay in Norfolk. As well as these, signing up at the higher tier will give you access to exclusive merchandise, including for the first 20 people who do so, a signed copy of Richard White's book Little Miss Friendly which investigates the 1961 murder of 12-year-old Linda Smith from Earls Cone in Essex. With your support, I hope to turn Outlines into a long-term and viable project. Thank you to my new and returning patrons, including Frank Bullitt, Rob McCullough, Rob Hampton, Christopher Cates, Kirsty Phillips, Andy Walker and Alyssa Novak. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter 
The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 